This is the MDT Podcast. A podcast for all healthcare professionals working with older adults. We are a multidisciplinary team educating about ageing. MDT. The MDT is brought to you by the Hearing Aid Podcast team. We focus on a different topic each week to work with you to enhance your knowledge to help you look after older people. Joyce is a 76-year-old lady with a history of type 2 diabetes for the past 15 years. She's got mild chronic kidney disease, atrial fibrillation, high blood pressure and osteoarthritis affecting her knees and her hands in particular. She had an episode of quite severe depression following the death of her husband in the 1990s, but has recovered well. She lives alone on a third floor flat and she presented to her GP four weeks ago with difficulty in climbing the stairs. Unfortunately, there is no lift and she can normally do this independently. She feels tired even after her breathlessness has gone away. Her GP initially treated her for a chest infection, but she's had no real improvement in her symptoms. And over the last two weeks, she's noticed that her ankles have become swollen and she's put this down to not walking around quite so much. Welcome to the MDT. I'm Jo Preston. I'm a consultant geriatrician in St George's in London. And I'm Ian Wilkinson. I'm a consultant geriatrician uh, down in East Surrey uh, in Redhill. And today we're going to be talking about heart failure and we have some people in the studio with us to help. And they are? Hi, my name is Jasmin de Kaylo. I'm a senior cardiovascular pharmacist. Um, I'm also a lecturer in cardiology and I have research experience specific in heart failure. So my name is Nasa Marimode. I work as a clinical nurse specialist in heart failure um, at Guy's and St Thomas's Hospital. My name is Lindsay Ip, and I'm a clinical psychologist who works with the heart failure team, integrating the psychosocial aspects of care. And uh, my name is Shabazz uh, Roshanzameh. I am a consultant geriatrician at Guy's and St Thomas's Hospital in London. But first, social media this week. Yes. Joe, what have you got? What have you got? So I have something which um, the Health Foundation tweeted. It's from a little, from a few weeks ago now, but it was about um, social deprivation and the impact on quality of life and years of poor health at the end of life. So we talked about this before in one of our earlier episodes. Basically, it demonstrates that women in the most deprived communities can expect on average 27 years of poor health at the end of their lives which is significantly more mm. than people born into different um, areas. So it's quite a nice graph, um, so we'll put a link to that. And it's just really important to think about preventative elements of care as well as reactive um, elements, which can sometimes feel more pressing. I went to a conference a few weeks ago down in Brighton looking at research in dementia. And one of the talks was from a chap called Professor Abrahams who came over from America. And he was talking about the assessment of capacity in people with cognitive impairment. In the States, they don't have an overarching equivalent law of the Mental Capacity Act. Each state is slightly different. And therefore, they don't necessarily have a yardstick by which to measure capacity. It's different state by state. And so he's been developing a tool that's called the IDA, um, And it's a structured, objective way of assessing capacity in somebody with cognitive impairment. I just really liked the first two bits of that tool. The the last latter bits are more like our normal capacity assessment. But the first bit was how to introduce that conversation. And it's about, uh, step one is, is assessing understanding. And it's about assessing the understanding of this problem in the general population. So it would be like, do you know anyone who's had a chest infection who got really unwell with that and then passed away. And that's your starting point. And so if they say yes, you go, all oh, right, 
do you ever do you think that might be um is that something that could be applicable to you and then you start that conversation okay. um that way because if they don't have that more general understanding it's unlikely they'll be able to transpose that to thinking just about themselves and then going on to think about your capacity for those decisions. That's interesting. That's really nice. Yeah. yeah. That's actually similar to how I um, introduce some of those conversations. So it's an interesting way to do it. I guess if they say no, it wouldn't necessarily rule out that they could make that decision, though. No, no, no. no. And then you go in. But it's just a nice way into the conversation. And I thought it similar for advanced care planning conversations. I thought it was a nice way in. Coming up this week, we're going to be thinking about heart failure in older people, thinking about some of the common etiologies and the classifications of it, uh, understanding some of the medical and, importantly, the non-pharmacological interventions and therapies, and having a think about what may mimic heart failure and some of the complexities of managing heart failure in patients with multimorbidity and polypharmacy. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the symptoms, some of the signs, some of the investigations and tests you may do, and then thinking about patient education and the multi-professional management of these patients. And we're going to do that with a multi-professional team who you've just met. So at the beginning of this, you heard about Joyce, and the episode today is going to be structured around Joyce and her journey with heart failure. Just to kick off that discussion, so Joyce, just a reminder, Joyce is a 76-year-old lady who's been developing heart failure in the community. So, as ever, we're going to start with some definitions. So, definition of heart failure, who wants to go? So, I think um, this is a a definition from the European Society of Cardiology. Um, The latest definition of heart failure is a complex clinical syndrome that arises from structural or functional impairment of the ventricular filling or ejection of blood. The principal clinical manifestations are breathlessness and fatigue, but uh, it may also restrict exercise tolerance and cause fluid retention. And this may result in pulmonary and peripheral edema. Okay. And um, there are a few different ways that we can define this. That's very much the clinical definition, but there's also some definitions on echocardiogram, which is one of the yeah. investigations we're going to talk a little bit about later um, that allows evaluation of the function of the heart. Echo, again, as you said, allows the evaluation of the function of the heart, in particular the left ventricular ejection fraction, which is how much the blood. Uh, how much blood, sorry, the left ventricle manages to pump out of the with each beat. And normal contraction is defined as, as really greater than about 55% of the volume of blood that's pumped out uh, with each beat. So w- what we would say is someone with uh, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction is someone who has ejection fraction of less than at the uh, 40%. Mm-hmm. And then there's another diagnosis of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, which is ejection fraction being over about 50%. Absolutely. And then there's this newer one that I hadn't heard much of before yes. we started doing this, which is the mid-range, heart failure with mid-range ejection, systole, uh, ejection fraction, which is in the middle, so 40 to 50, which Absolutely. we are not going to get into in this episode. <laughs> I think it's probably a little bit niche, um, but no, it's there. And this always needs to be put together with the clinical picture. So someone who's got a clinical diagnosis of heart failure, as we described earlier, but has a normal ejection fraction, we would call that a diagnosis of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And it has previously been called and quite often is called diastolic heart failure. So the echo is normal, but the clinical scenario is not. So the echo being normal doesn't necessarily take away from that diagnosis because you need to put it together clinically. And how it affects people can be very different. There's another classification based on that too. NYHA scores looks at function specifically. So class one would look at largely asymptomatic patients. Um, Class two would be shortness of breath um, and limitation of function on exertion, which is on uh, ordinary exertion, and that is without palpitations. Stage three would be uh, function limitation and shortness of breath on less than ordinary or what the patient would deem less than ordinary work rate 
and the and there may be palpitations associated with that. And then the final class four would be unable to uh, carry on any physical activity and there may be symptoms at rest as well. And I think it's important to know that your functional capability isn't limited to what your ejection fraction is. Like you might have people who um, have a good ejection fraction, so preserved ejection fraction, but they might have quite bad symptoms or somebody who has quite a low ejection fraction but then function... Uh, functionality uh, is quite low. So um, sometimes patients think, oh, I've got a low number, so my function may be bad. But then you have patients um, who... Um, oh, sorry. Have an injection fraction of 10% and actually completely functionally mm. normal. Yeah. And also it's important to know that that's, uh, it's dynamic. You can move up and down those stages, can't you, depending on your treatment. So yes. it's not if you're stage four, then that's it. You're going to be stage four forever. With treatment, you can reverse exactly. back. So... That's the important bit. Um, so relating this all to Joyce then, um, we've just heard about how she presents. Um, I think there are a few things there. We'll talk about um, heart failure and age, also some of the signs and symptoms that she's got and how they relate to heart failure and also how we make a diagnosis as well. So age and heart failure. Absolutely, yeah. So heart, heart failure is extremely common in older adults and it's becoming uh, more prevalent. And it's... Uh, Prevalence of heart failure is, is up to 2% of the general population, but rising up to 10% uh, of those over 70 years. But it's, what's important to know is that over 80% of all heart failure patients are 65 years and above. Mm-hmm. And Joyce is a, a case an example. And in older adults, and particularly women, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, so a normal echo, is one of the most common forms of heart failure. And that increases with age, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. So heart failure with preserved ejection fraction does increase with age and it's it's the most more common uh, form of heart failure that we have in our population and it tends to be more common in, in, in women. What do we think about her signs and the symptoms, how she's presented? It's quite typical of heart failure? Is that something you see quite often? Or? I think it's uh, quite classical. So if I had a pound for every patient who said that I went and got treated for a chest infection twice and it didn't, or my symptoms didn't get better. And I think especially in the older population, because they are quite comorbid, uh, you might say the symptoms are due to something else. Um, so I think that's a, a typical presentation uh, with heart failure. We're going to talk about the workup now. So um, there are a few things that we would recommend people do um, in primary care. It's the first diagnosis of heart failure. So first thing would be an ECG, looking for any sign of previous heart attacks or ischemic heart disease or rhythm disturbances that might be affecting the function of the heart. So in the blood test that's most crucial to excluding heart failure um, is NT-pro-PMP. Now, if the level exceeds 2,000, then there is guidance in terms of what to do after that. Um, so we would refer for an echo within two weeks. If the level is between 400 to 2,000, then we refer for an echo within six weeks. And if the level is below 400, then heart failure is unlikely and a differential diagnosis would need to be sought. And we know that um, BMPs aren't available in all DGHs, but there is guidance that um, they should be used in this way. So I think that over the coming years, we will start to see that. It's definitely used in primary care in this way. Other investigations that we do for heart failure include the chest X-ray, which which helps primarily uh, exclude other alternative causes such as COPD or a chest infection. But otherwise, we move on to echocardiogram. Uh, Echocardiography is is one of the key uh, modalities we have to diagnose um, heart failure. And uh, it's extremely important um, in this aspect. And if they've got a history of heart attack, then you would want to do that echo um, sooner rather than later. Echo looks at the function of the heart using ultrasound and uh, Doppler. (laughs) 
So a little bit more about the pro-BNP and how to interpret it because it can be falsely elevated and falsely low as well. In terms of non-cardiac conditions, it can be uh, falsely inc- increased in advancing age, anemia, renal impairment, uh, liver impairment, pulmonary embolism, obstructive sleep apnea, type 2 diabetes and COPD. And it can sometimes be falsely low as well, can't it? Yeah. Yes, and, and that can sometimes be brought on ironically by the actual medication that you're treating mm-hmm. uh, the patient with um, by heart failure, for heart failure rather. So things like the standard diuretics, ACE inhibitors, beta blockers, and also if the patient is obese, it can be falsely low as well. So now we're going to hear about uh, Joyce's results. Joyce's GP arranged an ECG, which showed atrial fibrillation only and no obvious signs of a previous heart attack or ischemic heart disease. So they went on to test a BNP, which was elevated at 5,000. On the basis of this, she was referred for an echocardiogram uh, in the next two weeks, which showed an ejection fraction of around 40%. Her chest X-ray, which was also requested, was normal. Based on the findings of the echocardiogram, Joyce has heart failure with a reduced ejection fraction and was commenced on medications to treat this. She was initially started on a low dose of a beta blocker, an ACE inhibitor, and a diuretic, fruzamide, and was referred to the heart failure nurse for ongoing support with the management and further monitoring of her blood tests. One of the important reasons to do the echo is to understand whether it is um, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction or preserved ejection fraction. So we're going to talk a little bit now about the differences in those and the treatment differences as well. So before uh, heading into the pharmacological management of heart failure with uh, systolic dysfunction, it's actually noteworthy to appreciate that most of the evidence that we have for therapies uh, that we use uh, that we'll be discussing in a second um, they are they have been used in patients that shall we say have represented other cohorts as opposed to the cohort that we're discussing in other words the elderly cohort and and specifically the female cohort in these landmark landmark studies that the support the uh, treatments that we're about to discuss they were largely underrepresented and therefore that that needs to be uh, taken into consideration when looking at these uh, treatments. But that doesn't mean to say that the populations that have been studied, that we discount that because, as we'll see in a second, these treatments have fantastic prognostic significance. And the general principles for treating heart failure in older adults is therefore similar as the approach that we would have in younger adults. Um, and generally those can be divided into symptom-relieving treatment and disease-modifying or life-prolonging treatments. So um, in heart failure, our, our main focus in both um, diastolic and systolic um, dysfunction is uh, symptom-relieving therapy such as water tablets. So we have two that we use commonly, which are bumetanide and fruzamide. And essentially what they do is take uh, fluid from excess places, either in your lungs or your legs or your abdomen or wherever it may be, and, and essentially you pee it out. So it's um, good for uh, symptom relief. So the main objective of uh, disease-modifying therapy in heart failure is firstly to improve the clinical status, and how that happens is through an improvement of symptoms plus an improvement of functional capacity, but ultimately it's to prolong life. It's to increase life expectancy, reduce mortality, so these medications, they are disease-modifying, but more, more important than that, they are of high prognostic significance. These prognostic medications, what we do, what, what we class as reverse remodel. Now, what that basically means, that's just a fancy way of saying um, 
they correct the structural and cellular changes that happen after an injury to the heart tissue. For example, after a heart attack, um, there may be cellular or structural changes that affect the size and geometry or mass of the cardiac tissue, and that may cause dangerous arrhythmia to develop and increase the chance of, of death. And what these medications do is they reverse that. And it's, inter- and it's very important, rather, to tell the patient from the outset that whilst these have got very high prognostic uh, significance and value, not all patients will experience uh, the full value of these uh, treatments. And, and that is a very frank and transparent conversation that should happen in the consultation when these treatments are prescribed. So all older adults who have got heart failure with reduced diffraction fraction should be treated with an ACE inhibitor or an ARB if they're intolerant of the ACE inhibitors. Chronic kidney disease is really common in heart failure um, and it shouldn't be a reason to not use those drugs. I know a lot of people get quite um, yeah, nervous get, about using nervous them. nervous about that, but uh, you should definitely yeah. use it to prognosis. There is limited evidence, as we've heard, about uh, using using these as therapy in the diastolic heart failure patients, so we wouldn't advocate their use routinely in that group. Yeah. So when we discussed the cornerstone of uh, therapy, when, when we touched upon it before in terms of prognostic medications, the, the cornerstone therapy, starting therapy rather, um, would be ACE inhibitors and beta blockers. And quite rightly, as Joe just mentioned, you would definitely initiate slowly and, and you would go slow after that in terms of titration. Now, the benefits to the patient may be gradual. They may perceive the benefits uh, not at an early stage, and that might be frustrating for them. They might become discouraged, and it's very important for the clinician from the outset to explain this, that the benefits are usually uh, seen maybe in the medium to long term, and it's important for them to come along the journey, as it were, and persist with it. So the role of the heart failure nurse specialist um, in any patient's journey is really um, just to support them uh, through diagnosis and uh, to uh, the end of their care. So I think um, with heart failure nurse, like if I was to have Joy right in front of me, communication is key and making sure that she understands uh, the terminology, especially because if she was on the ward, she would have so many words thrown out at her. So... uh, making sure that she understands what heart failure is, the cause of the heart failure. And I think it's very good that we have an etiology. We know what the cause is, um, especially if it's something that we could do something uh, for, like if she had a heart attack, etc. Um, key understanding uh, what the treatment options are for heart failure. So as my colleagues have said, we would start her on the uh, evidence-based therapy. So we'll start her on beta blockers and ACE inhibitors, um, explain what the role of the medications are and the fact that we try to aim to get um, Joyce on highest doses that she can tolerate um, and again I think at this point it's good to talk about some of the side effects that she might experience because some patients might say oh actually I'm feeling very tired on this etc and just making them understand that you will have some side effects with the medication but if you're having anything adverse then to let us know rather than stop completely. Self-management is very key in heart failure and we educate our patients on day-to-day monitoring of their signs and symptoms And essentially, if their heart is struggling a bit or they're feeling very unwell, um, for for them to know what to do. We've got a symptom tool, which I think we're going to include here as well, which is a symptom tracker, which gives patients guidance um, of who to contact and and when things aren't going quite right. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Yeah. So, um, again, our role, um, talk about exercise and some lifestyle adaptations. 
Um, patients, when they hear the word heart and especially failure, they kind of shy away from exercise. Yeah. So just saying that, look, you can still do your day-to-day activity, just taking a break every now and again, not pushing yourself too hard. If they are doing things that aren't too good for the heart, if they smoke and they drink, um, just advising that these are things that we won't recommend, you know, now that we know the heart isn't functioning too well. But again, looking at the person in front of you and just saying, you know, let's uh, try and help you uh, stop or support you through that journey. And I think um, it's very key to talk about follow-up arrangements um, and the the long-term prospects of heart failure, especially with medication, because some patients, you do see them in hospital and they're like, oh, yep, okay, um, I've had my one month supply of medication and that's that's that. I'm not going to have this <laughs> further. So just making sure that they understand this is a long term condition. This is something that will affect them um, th- throughout their life. And, um, you know, making sure they understand things could get better and equally things couldn't. Mm. And I think that's very key at the beginning just to say this is what we do to manage it at the moment. There are many steps we uh, use to help manage heart failure and and some people respond well to it and some people don't, but we won't know until we get there essentially. So not painting a bleak picture at the beginning, Mm. but saying this is uh, what we know so far and this is how we're going to help you throughout your journey. (laughs) I think one of the really nice things about your role, um, from my perspective especially, is some continuity and kind of linking together different teams and monitoring if things, doses and things do change. And that must be be very supportive for patients to, to have that there and that continuity. Yeah, so, um, you know, working quite well and the heart failure nurse will work with um, several people within the team. So the GP, the, the pharmacist, the consultant, geriatrician, cardiologist, clinical psychologist, so many people throughout the team. And uh, it's good for that continuity. So they've got that point of uh, call and for them to know that we will be there through uh, different stages of their journey. There might be uh, a period of their time where we're seeing them almost like once a month and in a period of time we'll say, actually, you're doing quite well now, we'll kind of say you know we won't offer you another appointment but we're always here if you need us yeah and I think it's about looking at the person in front of you and knowing that as we know people with long-term conditions are more likely to experience anxiety and and depression Mm. there might be other things changes to their dynamic um, that we need to address so just looking at the person that whole and not just treating the the heart failure but uh, treating the person two months later Joyce is now on three medications on top of her two for diabetes and a DOAC for her atrial fibrillation. She started to feel overwhelmed with this new diagnosis and the number of medications and the doses that are constantly switching and changing. She's no longer taking her painkillers for osteoarthritis and she was worried about taking so many medications and how they might all interact. She now rarely leaves the house. Her GP expresses concern to a heart failure nurse that she's worried about a relapse in her previous depression as this is how she presented at that time. So I think pharmacists are quite well placed in this situation to to help Joyce, aren't they, in kind of help with managing her medicines? Yeah, so pharmacists are well placed to help in the situation to help Joyce feel that she can actually regain control and, and support medi- uh, adherence with her medications, specifically with multiple medications, with, with multiple conditions, particularly with renal and, and uh, liver impairment. Adherence is an absolute fundamental point in, in heart failure. Um, so there's there's a wealth of evidence, particularly released this year, in a uh, in a very large study done in May, specifically looking at heart failure and um, outcomes, and they found that poor adherence linked to increased risk of death, mm-hmm. and and that is very powerful, um, as Nasser has very succinctly uh, and elegant, eloquently put, uh, that this is a very long this is a long term condition. And therefore, if the adherence is poor right from the outset, it doesn't bode well for mm. the patient in terms of the outlook. 
What sorts of things would you do for Joyce in this situation? The dosette box um, can help the patient uh, in terms of a medication aid. Um, it can list out what, what medications should be taken and when, uh, what the medications actually look like. Uh, many elderly patients um, become quite confused in terms of what medications and the timing of the medications should be. And this is really important. Also, many uh, patients, uh, particularly elderly patients, will have uh, felt they've taken the wrong medication. And this can help the clinicians identify, Help the, the dosset box can help them identify what medications the patient mm-hmm. may have taken. Yeah, I just think it's, it's worthwhile to note that, that, that uh, the heart failure patients uh, should have their yearly vaccinations. Uh, it's very important. Mm. And the GP's quite worried that she's getting low mood. So what does that kind of bring up for you, Lindsay? Yeah, so low mood and anxiety is actually very common in people with um, any long-term conditions, including heart failure. In fact, about 30% of people with heart failure will have depression or anxiety. And when they do have that, all their outcomes are worse. Um, so they have poor quality of life. Um, it affects their morbidity and, and mortality. Um, people with depression and heart failure um, are eight times more likely to die within 30 months than people who don't have depression. So it's it's really important that we screen um, all the heart failure patients for anxiety and depression and provide the appropriate support. So in Joyce's case, um, I would do a full assessment of, you know, what is causing her low mood um, how that is affecting her uh, management of her heart condition. So um, we sort of ask about her current mood symptoms, any sort of recent stresses, but also get a history of her previous sort of depressive episodes and also her kind of support system, her upbringing um, and any sort of family dynamics that may exacerbate the situation. Um, And at the same time, also look at what her strengths and resources and supports are and and activating that um, when when I provide the therapy for her. Following these interventions, Joyce is diagnosed with depression and has a course of counselling alongside her antidepressant medications. A decision is made that now that she's had two episodes of a low mood and depression, she should remain on this longer term. Now that things haven't improved, um, she would probably need to start on an antidepressant, given that she's had a significant uh, depression in the past. And there is something about the choice of antidepressants here. So the preference would be for an SSRI or metazapine and to try and avoid tricyclics where possible because they can um, contribute to um, rhythm problems with the heart. Joyce is stable for many years, but several years later she begins to fall and is referred to the local falls prevention service for physiotherapy strength and balance training, and a medical review by a geriatrician. The referral letter reads, Please could you review this 84-year-old lady who has a diagnosis of heart failure and has been stable for some time. Over the last six months, she's been admitted with four heart failure exacerbations. She's now breathless simply on walking around her flat. Of late, she's also begun to fall. She's got a postural drop in her blood pressure, and she's had carers following the last couple of attendances to the acute medical unit. The first one was when she had a fall and she was found to have a low sodium and her weight is also reducing. She's mildly anemic and her renal function is gradually worsening. Her carers have noticed that she can't always remember if she's had her medications or not and they're a little concerned that she may not be getting all of her medications. She's keen not to be admitted to hospital or to have any further invasive tests. So this is really clearly an area where CGAs can be really helpful, isn't it? Absolutely. 
big role for geriatricians. Absolutely. <laughs> Got to keep ourselves in business. I think this is really helpful, especially at this stage, to help manage the expectations of Joyce and, and set goals with her that are realistic um, and have some discussions around what those goals are, set management plans and kind of really look at her holistically and see what she, she wants as a priority now. So moving away from the kind of disease modifying stuff that we talked about earlier to um, what do we want to achieve here with her now that she's beginning to become more frail. So uh, frailty is is a very uh, hot topic at the moment and it's uh, becoming ex- uh, extremely common and uh, something which is uh, we're all uh, learning a lot more about uh, of late. So frailty is, is uh, essentially a, a state of increased vulnerability uh, to physiological stress and there's a strong relationship between frailty and heart failure and both sim- uh, share similar pathologies, in fact. The salient features uh, are of frailty are actually um, interlinked with heart failure, such as weakness, skeletal muscle wasting, uh, reduced exercise tolerance, uh, self-reported exhaustion. These kind of things are very much um, pre- prevalent in, in heart failure patients as well. And heart failure exacerbations and hospitalizations are likely to accelerate then that cycle of frailty as well, aren't Absolutely. they, to kind of cause More. it to progress quicker. Something to be conscious of if you're using the clinical frailty score is that because it's quite mobility focused, actually you might score um, higher or lower depending on how bad your heart failure is, which is always something that they you have to bear in mind and tell people, no, that's maybe not uh, that's right. an accurate representation Absolutely. of their underlying frailty. I think the MDT has a big role to play uh, in managing patients with a heart failure, uh, as we've already mentioned. Mm. Um, but I think uh, interventions uh, such as strength and balance uh, training, physical rehabilitation, nutritional supplementation, they all help improve functional impairment and uh, prognosis. So we're kind of moving into the area with Joyce where we're looking at a poor prognosis and doing some advanced care planning, really, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. So heart failure is uh, particularly characteristic of multiple uh, admissions to hospital and frequent admissions to hospital are a poor prognostic sign. Which we're seeing with Joyce now. Yeah, we? which we're seeing with Joyce. And in addition to that, you can see um, that perhaps the renal function is getting worse. Perhaps her ability to walk around and do things for herself, she's breathless on very little activity. So her NYHA score is, is higher now. Three or yeah. four, yes. And um, you may also find that that there are uh, other features as well. So the albumin level, the protein level in the blood is getting lower, which makes the fluid status more difficult to assess because there's more fluid in the tissues and increasing edema or swelling in the tissues, which is making the diuretic therapy difficult to manage or assess. So you find that um, you're having to give increasing doses of diuretics to even just to stay still with yeah. the level of edema that we've becomes got. becomes much more refractory. Yeah. As the heart gets weaker, um, the blood pressure is difficult to maintain. And so we find ourselves taking out the ACE inhibitors and the beta blocks, or at least reducing the doses, which then makes the fluid even more difficult to manage. Yeah. Um, but 
we we have a lot of difficult choices to make um, as the heart failure advances. And we did an episode on postural hypotension and we mm. talked about that shared decision making for yeah. people, especially when um, you have been on medications for quite a long time that have kept you well and you've been told you need to take these forever. That kind of shift towards actually now they're causing potentially more harm and day to day impact on your life. So mm. looking at rationalising medications to in, in line with their goals. And she's losing weight as well, which is another poor sign as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It becomes, it's a very catabolic state yeah. um, where people start to lose weight mm. and find it difficult to uh, general muscular weakening and reduction of muscle bulk as yeah. well. And we did an episode right at the beginning of this series, so six point. Zero one, which was on advanced care planning mm-hmm. and we talked about trajectories in that and heart failure was in that organ dysfunction that yeah. middle tra- trajectory where it's downhill overall but mm-hmm. with, with frequent dips down and what we're seeing here is more frequent dips down for Joyce and, mm-hmm. and, and that, that's a sign this is a, a good time to start doing advanced care planning if you haven't already done it. So how would you go about that with Joyce? It's kind of one of the things that the heart failure nurses do quite well and routinely isn't it the patient so it's a decision we make as an mdt where we'll go to uh, our local mdt with the consultant cardiologist the older person's physician the psychologist the pharmacist another heart failure nurses social workers and we'll discuss the case we'll often let the patients know that we're doing that and get their consent to do that as well because they need to be involved in that discussion absolutely mm. It's difficult, as I said, to predict the end of life because people do go up and down. However, that trajectory that Joyce is on is confirming that there's uh, a need to have those discussions. So what we'd say to Joyce is, um, how do you think things are going? And um, and just take our lead from how she comes back. Um, or uh, it's it seems like things are getting more difficult for you. Is that what... Is, is that how you experience it also? And if you're, um, you were to continue getting more unwell, what would you want? Uh, well, Joyce has said that she wouldn't really want to go back to hospital. And so it's important to then think about what support she'd need at home. And particularly with heart failure, um, we're emphasising much more symptomatic management. So it will be finding ways to manage the uh, swelling and breathlessness. So we'd be thinking about anticipatory medications. We'd be thinking also about uh, psychological well-being and a spiritual well-being as well. Um, Because often at these times in life, people are asking why or referring back to um, times of regret. And it's important to be kind give time, listen, and um, be be prepared to just hold whatever somebody's coming up with um, and not feel you have to solve it. But people do need to be heard and sort of held in mind. Absolutely. Yeah. And palliative care teams are very well set up to do that, aren't yeah, they, and can provide yeah. really good support. And, and increasingly, as we talked about before as well, is that they're, they're doing a lot more um, non-cancer-based management. So people with advanced um, organ dysfunction like this and dementia and frailty, they're becoming much more involved and they might be a route for, mm. they might be a route for support for, for Joyce in, in achieving staying at home or not being admitted to hospital in the future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I don't think these discussions are about what somebody would want um, 
uh, at the end of their life are one-time discussions. Absolutely. Um, they're often actually discussions that we might have even at the beginning mm. of a diagnosis. Um, That's absolutely when we should be doing it, yeah. isn't it, if you can. Yeah, because yeah, often people are frightened that the, you know the heart being weak will result in death. Sometimes people's first presenting problem mm. is a heart attack or an out-of-hospital arrest. So, so quite a life-threatening event. Yeah. Yeah, the death anxiety is very common, yeah. and a lot of what we do is also helping patients cope with the uncertainty um, of their illness and kind of focus on what is within their control mm. to optimise what they have left. So let's go back and hear about Joyce now to see how she responded to those interventions. Joyce says many of her medications stopped or reduced to favour a good standing blood pressure and reduce her falls risk. Priority is given to a gyretic therapy as a symptom control over disease-modifying treatment. She expresses a wish not to return to hospital again in the future and understands that an exacerbation of her heart failure may be more optimally treated in hospital. She's referred to the local palliative care team by her heart failure clinical nurse specialist for home care management with a backup of hospice admission if required. The MDT Podcast. And now it's time for our MD teaser. So, catchy titled MDT Item Guessing Game. And this is a bit like a verbal catchphrase. This is great for radio. This is great for the radio, and, and, and this is down to our faculty. So, thank you very much, faculty. And I'm going to make an executive decision, so you're going to go first this time. Okay, all right. So this is, in one corner, a soft material which, when cooked, turns into a different texture and a different thing that you might use to make sandwiches, for example. But you have to think about how it is before it's cooked. <laughs> okay, yep. Just think about what that is. Then there is um, a field... Yep. There are some badgers in the field, and they are going in. <laughs> they are going into their home where they live. Yes. Okay. Is it? I know. I think I might know what it is. Carry on, but I think I, I think I might. Yeah, know. do you want to guess? No, no, no. Keep going. Okay. And the third bit is some cuboid packaging. Yeah. Is this a dose set box? A dosser box. Yeah. Yes. Nice. Well done. That's awful. <laughs> now that's really good. Well done. Okay, so my I one is with that. My, my, my one is 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 similar actually in in the, the way I'm going to describe okay. it. Okay. Okay. So there's a mountain. It's it's quite a small mountain. A hill. And um, no, it's a mountain. And on top of it, there's a little peak made of stone. But you kind of have to know what that's called. So we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. So there's a, okay. there's a small mountain, and there's a big giant who's really huge. Okay. Okay. And on the left side of the screen, he's rolling this mountain over and over. Rolling right. it over and over. He's picking it up and turning it up, picking it up turning it over. And then on the right-hand side of the screen is, uh, probably on a different scale, a climbing frame. And that's the two bits of the word. That's a, there's a giant rolling mountain. Yeah. And on the right-hand side of the frame is a climbing frame. Okay. So there's a frame on one side. There's a frame on one side, yeah. And he's rolling something on the left-hand side. A type, okay. Relator frame? Yes, a tour. Yeah, why, yeah, yeah. Why, why a giant? <laughs> well, I figured if it's a tour, that's, that's quite a big thing, and a normal person wouldn't be able to roll that. Okay. Just got a bit giant. I didn't even get the tour bit, so that was wasted on me. But uh, cool. There we go. Like it. Well done. So pinned to our Twitter feed um, is one for you yes. using the hashtag MDTeaser. Send us your guesses. Uh, the first person to get this one correct will receive one of our uh, coveted MDT mugs. Much coveted. Mm. And you can find that at MDT underscore podcast. 
please use the hashtag MDTeaser mm-hmm. so you can see other people's guesses as well. You can also find us on Facebook. Facebook.com forward slash MDT podcast. Yep. And our website is www.thehearingaidpodcast.org.uk. And there you can find a CPD log, all of the show notes for all of these episodes, links to the social media, links to other things that we've mentioned in the episode. And the infographics, which are free. And infographics. Show notes and maps to your postgraduate yeah. curriculums. Go for it. Go mad. Use them all. And let us know what you do with them. Yeah. Time for the gallery. Summer is late, my heart. Words plucked out of the air some 40 years ago when I was wild with love and torn almost in two scatter like leaves this night of whistling wind and rain. It is my heart that's late. It is my song that's flown. Outdoors, all afternoon, under a gunmetal sky, staking my garden down, I kneel to the crickets trilling underfoot as if about to burst from their crusty shells. And like a child again, marvel to hear so clear and brave a music pour from such a small machine. What makes the engine go? Desire, desire, desire. The longing for the dance stirs in the buried life. One season only, and it's done. So let the battered old willow thrash against the window panes and the house timbers creak. Darling, do you remember the man you married? Touch me. Remind me who I am. The MDT will reconvene in two weeks' time. Dr. Wilkinson has previously received funding from Astellas and UCB Pharmaceuticals for delivering educational activities. The MDT Podcast is a Hearing Aid Podcast's Big Things Media production. Additional music by Kevin McLeod. This podcast has been made possible from a technology-enhanced learning grant from Health Education England, spreading education throughout Kent, Surrey and Sussex. For more information, visit thehearingaidpodcasts.org.uk.